150 churches or some odd uh, over the um, scope of Austin today and for the next seven weeks who are gathering together around um, just a sermon series called Explore God. It's really awesome. I mean, it's across all denominational lines, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Baptists, Methodists, everyone's here, everyone's in, asking together collectively with our communities and um, with our churches, some of these monumental questions of life. It's really cool. I've never seen anything like this um, across so many boundaries. Um, And so it's really exciting for me to get to think about all the churches this morning who are asking the same question. And we're all sort of turning to scripture for the answer. And so um, we're dealing with just a teeny little issue this morning. Does life have purpose? Just an easy layup of a question. I told Brandon, this is so theologically fundamental, I can't even just spin a yarn. I mean, this is going to require some work here. And I was laughing this week because we're in our, we're about to start our, what, third week of school here. So we're, we're back in the school. Brandon and I have five kids. And so um, the beginning of school is like a joyous occasion. Okay, whatever. Um, I love you. Love you. I just like it when the school takes you back. Um, and so our oldest son, Gavin, is 15. He's a sophomore. And he's done this thing. He's starting to do this thing this year he's never done. And I, it's hilarious. But, um, you know, normally dragging my kids out of bed in the morning for school, it's like Armageddon. Um, but Gavin has been getting up early on his own by himself. I don't know how this is happening. I thought he was incapable. And he's coming downstairs early, like when the elementary kids are still getting ready for school. And he's wrapping up in a blanket, and he's just laying on the couch for like 45 minutes. And I said, what is going, what is this? Why are you doing this instead of staying in bed where you normally like to be? And he said, I've just, I have a new philosophy. I was like, oh, all right. I didn't even know he thought deeply about anything. And um, he said, I think I'm just going to get up early in the morning, and I'm going to do one of two things. I'm either going to take a morning nap, you know, where he just woke up and then he naps. Um, Or I'm just going to lay here and accept life. This is the dumb kind of thing a 15-year-old says, okay? Um, I'm just going to lay here and accept life. And I was like, just, I would like you to just get out the door and go to school. But um, so I was thinking about that this week as I was preparing for this question. And I mean, Gavin's 15. Let's just be honest. For most 15-year-olds, it is easy to accept life, right? Um, What do you have to do? You're 15. Go to school. Your parents are paying for everything. Uh, someone else cooks for you, I accept, you know, that's the life he's accepting. But I'm thinking about so much, so many of us, and we've lived longer, and we've traveled different roads, and we've gone further, and we've seen more, and it gets harder just to accept life the older we get. We've seen too much suffering. We have been a part of injustice and of loss and of confusion, and there really does come a moment where I've done it too, where we get to this point where we just say, is there a point to this? I mean, is there, is there a point? Why are we here? And what is all this? What is the point of living? Am I here for a purpose or is this just random? Is this all meaningless? Is this just a hot mess? And we are just going to live until we die. Um, It's been neat kind of going back through some of the um, explore God material and to hear what people say when asked the question, what do you think the purpose of life is? What do you think, and you can just holler it out, what do you think are the, some of the tip-top answers um, when people are polled, and not necessarily people of faith, just anybody, um, when asked, what do you think is the purpose of life? What do you think they say? 
Live it to the fullest is a big one. That's, that's high. What else? Happiness. That was the number one thing said. What else? To serve. The good people say that. To love. Anybody else? Yeah, a lot of people say it is random. There is no point. This is no, no thinking, rational person can look at the scope of the planet and conclude in any way that there's a purpose to this. It's too arbitrary. Okay, it's, it's too, it's too, there's too much struggle. Let's do this together this morning. So in the search for this, the truth of this question, and we need to know this, don't we? I mean, this is, this is a cornerstone to how we should be living our lives. So let's discuss really quickly what our purpose is not. Let's go there first. Let's go into the backspace. Um, before we move forward. So I have this truth plumb line. I use it for all kinds of things. It's this statement that I use to vet all sorts of theology. So anytime I hear teaching or I hear someone say, this is what God meant, or this is what the Bible says, this is my plumb line that I hold it up to. And it is this, if this isn't also true for a single mom in Haiti, that it isn't true for us. Let me explain what I mean. Like, for example, there's a real popular theology out there right now. It's kind of loosely dubbed the prosperity gospel. Um, and it sort of gener- generically says that if you are in communion with God, if you are being obedient, if you are being faithful, and if you trust him enough, then prosperity is coming your way. All kinds of prosperity, very much including financial prosperity. Okay, so you can see why people like this theology. You can see why it draws the masses. But so what I do, I hold up a plumb line. If it is not true for a single mom in Haiti, then it is not true. Okay, um, and so if that were honest, genuine theology, what would that say about the millions and millions of believers globally who live in poverty? They're what? Not faithful enough? They're not loved as much? Um, so that, that's my vet. That's how I discover what is true and what isn't. Because purpose, as we bring it back down to today's question, purpose cannot involve advantages that are only available to the privileged. Okay? So here's the basic philosophy. Purpose, if that's our plumb line, purpose can have nothing to do with career success. That just simply can't be the case. That is a, that's a Western obsession. Okay? Because we are um, we're so advantaged and we are so educated and we have the luxury of going to college and making that a big cornerstone of our life. But it, that, that doesn't work everywhere, so it's, it can't be it. Um, it cannot be family. A lot of women that I hear specifically, and some men as well, will say that their purpose here is family. And that, that, is, that is the brunt of what they were put on this earth to do. Um, that that is our purpose in general is to create these healthy families generation after generation. But the plumb line, again, okay, what about the single adult? If they don't, if they don't have a new family that they birthed, do they have no purpose? Um, what about the widower? What about the childless couple? What about the orphan? Okay, if, if it doesn't work for everyone, it doesn't work. Okay, if it can only fit into the category that we find ourselves in, those of us at the top of the food chain, then it's not true. So it can't be that. 
Um, it, it can't even be happiness. That is too ambiguous. What does that even mean? That only the happy people are favored or that God is somehow granting some of us happiness where we, we can in no possible way admit that people are not genuinely struggling on earth. Um, I'm not sure the pursuit of happiness is our purpose. Okay. Um, it couldn't even be being a good person that has no standard. What is good to you? What is good to me? That depends on our circumstances. So if purpose cannot be true for everyone, then it isn't true. So spiritually speaking, let's talk about this real quick. If God created us indeed for those purposes that we just listed, career, family, success, happiness, being a good person, I got to be honest with you and tell you that I wouldn't actually want to love a God like that. I would not be interested in that brand of religion because if that were the case, if those were our purposes, that would make God very arbitrary and very random and extremely unfair because conversely, our purpose would be dependent upon where we were born and when and to whom. It would be dependent on our marital status and or our ability to have children. Okay, it would depend on how much education we could afford and what sort of resources we had at our fingertips. It would depend on our health. Um, if being a good person was our purpose, what happens when someone goes off the rails? I mean, what does that mean for our, well, our prisoners or our criminals? Or what does it just mean for all of us, just ordinary sinners who pretty much fail constantly our entire life? What does that mean if that is our purpose to be good? Because if personal goodness is the substance of our purpose, then we are all doomed. I'm sorry to tell you that. So, real quick for me, just for argument's sake, let's play it out. Let's play it out. Because uh, these are real common identity markers in our context, in our American context. These are a lot of the things that people feel like, whether they would say it or not, what is my purpose? It is the way they move their lives. It is the way they structure their goals, um, all of their, uh, all the way that they sort of move forward with their choices and decisions says, that's what I think my purpose is. So let's say you live for your career. And you say, that's kind of my purpose. My, it's very deeply rooted in what I do for a living. So if you don't do well in your career, that may punish you all of your life. Because with it will come a sense of failure constantly, if that's, if that's your cornerstone. Or say, if you live for your children and they don't turn out all right, okay? Um... You could be absolutely in torment because your purpose fell apart. Or even more subtly, if you live for your children, well, one day they're going to grow up and move away and then your purpose is over. So what are you left with? So that does not have long reaching enough effects in the purpose of our lives. This is some interesting scripture that I think is really instructive and has a lot for us still to learn. It's in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, if you've got your Bibles. Otherwise, I'll read it to you. This is God talking about his people who had just sort of gone off the rails. I mean, they are looking for meaning pretty much everywhere but in him. Um, so that's been a very common human pursuit since, since there were humans. This is, we are in no different space than people have ever existed in. But this is what he said. He said, my people have committed two sins. 
They've forsaken me. The spring of living water. And have dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So I studied that a little bit this week. And I learned that in Palestine, at the time of this writing, they essentially had three sources of water. Um, first and best, their, their top choice, the best choice, was fresh running water, like a spring, like a stream. Um, that, is, that, it was, that was going to be their, the best water source they could possibly have. Second choice, if they couldn't have access to that, or if they couldn't find that, the second best was a well that was connected to groundwater. So even though it wasn't running and it wasn't fresh, it was a continuous source of water um, because it was down at the very bottom was a water source. Um, The last choice, the worst choice, when you had neither of those available to you um, was what they called a cistern. Um, And I looked up a lot of pictures of it and it really just looks like a a pool dug out of either the earth or out of the side of a rock, like like a pit. And what they would do is they would either, they'd do one of two things. They would either fill up water from somewhere and dump it into the cistern as a water holder, or they would just hope to catch runoff, like with rain. So that if it rained enough and they built it right and all the conditions were right, at the very minimum, they'd have some stagnant water. Um, So here in this imagery that God puts forth, we see that the Israelites not only traded the very best of water supplies, the running stream, for the worst. But their cistern was actually broken so that it couldn't even hold water at all. So they cheated themselves. It's what God is trying to explain here. They cheated themselves. It's, it would be foolishness to leave a stream for a cistern. That's crazy. Especially a broken one. Because the stream, the water is living and it's always running and it's ever springing up, which is not the case in a cistern. It would be stagnant water full of sludge down at the bottom. And furthermore, in this picture, in a broken cistern, there's no water at all. And so I wonder if this isn't as true today as the day that this was penned, in that we continue specifically, I think, in our culture to dig cisterns that won't hold water. Don't we? We dig wells for careers. We dig wells for families. We dig wells for possessions and for education and for fame and for glory and for notoriety and just you name it. And ultimately, it just doesn't hold water. Time and time and time again, we find that what we're looking for is living and flowing and constant. And these things never provide them. Even in their best forms, these things don't provide them. Matthew Henry put it like this, a theologian from just forever ago. At the best, it will hold but a little water. And that, dead and flat. And soon corrupting and becoming nauseous. Worse... It is a broken cistern that cracks and cleaves in hot weather so that the water is lost when we have most need of it. And it's the truth. So when exploring the meaning of life together this morning, we can only consider a purpose that transcends country and culture and class 
and pay grade and any sort of family dynamics and success and failure. We have to ask ourselves, it has to be possible for everyone everywhere, regardless of circumstances, because we do not serve an American God. Okay? This is not, this is the context that we know, but we've been on the scene like one second. Okay? This is, if we're dealing with purpose, we have to take a huge global look at what God is doing here with humanity. So if all these other things are broken cisterns, what is the living water? Scripture primarily points to two fundamental reasons for our existence. So let me establish this first because I don't know if this rises up in you, but it does in me. Um, Let's say this first. God has no unmet needs. Let's establish that right away. We were not created because God needed a bunch of people to love him. Okay? He didn't have some sort of something broken in him that required some sort of affection coming in from a creation. Okay? That is a natural outcome. We end up loving him. But that's not, he doesn't need us to do that. That wasn't something wrong with God in the first place that he needed to fill that void. Okay? Um, he didn't create us because he needed people to obey him. Again, that happens. This is a natural outcome of figuring out what we actually are here for, which we'll talk about in a second. But to say that God created man to obey him is to kind of have to assume that he has some sort of weird, perverted need to hold power over people and boss them around. Right? I'm going to create these people so they'll all have to do my bidding. This is not at all like the God I know. That is not his character, but I know a lot of people think of him like that. But he's told us in scripture, um, you don't, I am not served by human hands. Okay, that, I don't need you to do that for me. In Acts 17, 24 and 25, this is what Paul said. This is so helpful. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives life to, he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Okay? Jesus said this right before he died. He said, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Okay? They already had all the glory they needed. They had glory before the world was. Okay? This isn't some weird need um, to be worshipped because there wasn't enough glory. God was full and complete in his glory before there was ever a human breath. Okay? So, let's set that over here because I think our first purpose, the reason we were created, the reason that we are here, the reason that we lived and breathed is is this, first and foremost, to be loved by God. We are here to be loved by God. Let me give you an analogy. And this is an imperfect analogy because analogies just are. Um, you know, we're trying to compare our understanding with the, just an infinite God who told us, listen, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. You're, just, you're never going to fully get me. But as we try, um, like Jesus always used story to sort of help us try to understand God. So I would say it's something like the analogy of a healthy couple who decides to have a baby. Uh, God gave us this story, actually. He calls himself father more than any other term in scripture. Um, He's trying to help us understand his character. He's trying to help us get our heads around the way he moves and why. And so 
inversely, it is an unhealthy couple, right, who would look at each other and say, let's have babies so we can have someone to love us, right? It's a, it's a toxic couple that would say, let's have children so they can serve us. Let's have children for our workforce, okay? It's an unhealthy couple who would say, let's have children so we can boss them around. Or let's have children so that um, we can get praise from their success, Let's live our lives vicariously through these kids. That sort of parenting choice, when unhealthy people decide to have children for the wrong reason, creates this dysfunctional relationship that almost almost never heals. When the parents need the children more than the children need the parents, something is wrong. And it's interesting because... This still happens, actually, with believers a lot of times. And it's not because that's how God is. It's because of how we think that's how God is. We think he's mean. We think he's scary. We think he's controlling. Um, We don't understand that we were actually created to be loved. And because that is so hard for us to get our minds around, we are dysfunctional with God. Because we are trying to please him, to earn his favor, um, to appease him. I lived my life to appease God for a decade. Just trying to keep him not mad at me. Um, or, or feeling like every, all the things that I did for God, there was my purpose. That's when he was pleased in me and no other time. So there can still be dysfunction here. But on the other hand, it is the healthy couple who says to one another, okay, we have this like abundance of love in our marriage. Let's share it. Let's have children that look like us and they, they have their, our life within them and they love like us. And then they can have this like intimate love relationship with us. We will be a family. Okay. That's what the healthy couple says. It's that couple's just pure good love that motivates them to give life to children. So I love in Genesis one verse uh, 26, um, there's all this creating God's creating rivers and fish and clouds and all the stuff. And he keeps saying, let there be, right? Let there be, let there be, let there be. And he gets to the very end of creation. And scripture tells us, then God said, let us make man in our image. It's like this moment where he stops and kind of rubs his hands together. And he turns to Jesus and he turns to the Holy Spirit. And he says, let's make man in our image. Just the crowning glory of creation after our likeness. Listen, here's the deal. Um, God made us to love us. That's it. I can't really help you understand um, why, because I honestly, I don't know why. I do not know why God loves us like he loves us. I can't hardly get my head around the depth and the breadth of his love for us. It, It has always fried a circuit for me. But I know that he tells us over and over and over in his word, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Let's, let's put this back to our plumb line. God made us to love us. That is not dependent on circumstances. Does that work for the single mom in Haiti? Yes, it does. It is always true. It is true for all of us, for all nations. There, I, I can't count how many times God said, I will draw all nations to me. We, it's not just us, okay? It always works. I, I think about specifically, I mean, let's just, let's run into the Haiti metaphor um, I was in Haiti last fall with Lamar and with the Help One team. And uh, we were in Tent City 
you've heard us talk about Tent City a lot. It is, it's devastating. I don't know how else to describe Tent City except to tell you, it, it invited me to full despair. Um, these are, um, Lamar, how many people are still in Tent City? Can you, do you know the number? Tens of thousands. Um, displaced from the, the earthquake. You know, so we're three years out and they're still living in conditions that I, you, can't, I, you can't believe it until you see it with your eyes. Just sewage running down the streets and just... And three years they've been there. So displaced and um, the amount of human rights abuses that go on in that place would just... Drain the blood from your face. So we are there in Tent City, and I'm looking at these women like me, their moms, like me. There's their kid on their lap. This is where they live with their families. And I am overcome. I, can't, I can barely speak in Tent City. I am um, outside of my mind. And after we've sort of been through it a little bit, we, we come to this sort of pavilion of sorts that's been put up in the middle of Tent City, and it's church. And they have church all the time. And so these people are coming in from these tents to come to church. And they are joyful. I cannot explain it. Okay? They have life and love in their eyes. And we are all gathering together and we are singing, <laughs> we are singing how great thou art in Creole. I'm crying. That's what I was doing. I wasn't singing at all, but, and it's, I'm just looking around at everybody and it is stunning. The amount of pleasure that I knew they felt that God had in them in that moment. I couldn't believe it. How, where could this possibly come from? How could you possibly sing how great thou art in the middle of this despair. And it's because they understand God loves them. That's it. They're not hanging on to any of the other things you and I hang on to. Our, our privileges and our advantages and our successes and our comfort and our security and all the things that make us feel loved, they had zero of those things. It was just simply that they knew God loved them and delighted them and that gave them all the reason they needed to sing how great thou art. It's helpful for me to read Romans 8, verse 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Let's be honest, those things would separate a lot of us from Christ. It wouldn't separate him from us, it would separate us from him, would it not? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's that simple, because he loves us. For I am convinced... That neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, 
neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He made us to love us. Nothing can take it away. The second reason that I believe Scripture tells us we were created is to enjoy and display God's glory. First of all, this is why we were made. Colossians tells us all things were created through him and for him. This is why we eat and drink. First Corinthians says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, I don't, wherever you live, whatever your station is, um, whatever you've been given, whatever country you were born in, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. This is why we do good works. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That's what Jesus tells us in Matthew. So you and I are on this planet for just a few years. And it's just a sliver of time in the scope of history. Some of us are halfway done. But it's all for the same ultimate reason in various forms. And it is this. The reason that we live and die is to make Jesus look as valuable as he is. So the key question for us becomes, how can I use my possessions and my body and my time and my career and my entire life to show that Christ is precious beyond everything? Again, this is not dependent on circumstances. This can always be true. Wherever you are, wherever you live, whatever you are doing, you can show by your life and by your words and by your choices that Jesus is the one and only. Okay? Um, I, Brandon and I had lunch a couple of weeks ago with um, Matt Thomas. Some of you guys have met him. He is the bishop over the world. What is his title? Um, he is a bishop in the Free Methodist Church, under which umbrella we are. And he is primarily global, so he spends very little time in the United States. So anytime he comes here, I am like a little kid at his feet, like, Matt, tell me something. Tell me about where you just have been. Tell me about what you've seen. He's always telling us these miracles, that they just ordinary miracles they witness every single day of their life in the rest of the world. And so I'm like, uh, we just were at Austin Pizza Garden just a couple of weeks ago, and I said, tell me, tell me something good. Tell me something good in the world. And he said, well, I was, um, I just spent a, an extended amount of time in a really rural, extremely impoverished part of India. Um, so if you know anything about India, Christianity is virtually non-existent there, right? Um, it is growing, but that is not the dominant religion there by a long, by a long stretch. And so um, he's with some of the Free Methodist Church leaders in rural India. And, and he's, he's joining them, and they're going to have this ordination service where they're going to ordain sort of into the ministry, which is just sort of a, a formal stamp of approval of authority given to people to minister on behalf of the church. And so there's only five guys that they're um, ordaining. And so Matt tells us that he sort of pulls the, the, the lead pastor of that community over to the side and he says, oh, gosh, why aren't we ordaining more people? I mean, 
we've been working tirelessly here for so long, and I, I, I felt like we were moving forward more than this. And um, Matt says, the pastor says, well, I mean, maybe we're doing this wrong. Um, he said, so what we do is when a person, it could be a man or a woman, um, leads 100 people to Christ, we say that they, at that point, are um, an evangelist in training. And once 10 of the people that they have led to Jesus, that they have um, brought into the family, once 10 of them have each led 100 people to Christ, then we say that they're an evangelist. They've moved out of training. Now they just are, get to be a whole full evangelist. Um, and then once that they plant a church and it is solid and growing, um, we call them a minister in training. And then once they have planted five or more churches, um, they are up for ordination. And so Matt was like, huh. <laughs> so he looks at these five guys standing up and he says, so like, how many churches have you guys planted? And they're like, six, 12, 19, 38. And the lead pastor, still kind of concerned about the whole discussion, looks over at Matt and he's like, I don't, do you think they're ready? <laughs> mm-hmm. Think they're ready. I mean, in America, any fool can get in front of a church and say a bunch of words. And so, clearly. And so, I think, I don't care where you live. I don't care what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are. It doesn't matter how educated or how non-educated you are. It doesn't matter um, how visible your gifts are or how behind the scenes they are. Everyone in their being can live in such a way to enjoy and display God's glory. Okay, this works everywhere. This works for those of you who think, my life is way too ordinary for this conversation. I have not planted 38 churches. Um, I'm, I stay home and raise kids. You are in the mix. Whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. That counts, that matters, that is part and parcel of our purpose. It is not at all dependent on your station in life. It does not have to be a monumental international movement. It can be the quiet work that you are doing in your home and on your street. This is where our purpose gets very contextual. This is where we can say, okay, let's bring this. So if the purpose is to enjoy and display God's glory, that's something we can, we can pull into our lives, just like anybody else can. Like these rural folks in India can do it. You and I can do it. We start going, okay, how can I use my gifts and everybody has those. The Bible tells us, again, all people are gifted. How can I use my gifts? How can I use my talents and my relationships and just the ordinary elements of my life as tools to point back in some way to how good and wonderful God is? Remember this. God does not ask us to display his glory because he's egotistical. Um, sometimes it feels that way when you hear, I, this is for my glory. I want you to do all this for my glory. I want you to live and move to bring honor to my name. It kind of sounds like, gosh, get a grip, you know? But 
this is how the kingdom works. When we make it known through our lives, by the way that we speak, the way that we treat people, the way that we respond to people, our words, our kindness, our life of servanthood, um, just the display of Christ's character in our hearts. When we, when we begin to make it known that he is precious, what happens is people are drawn to that. And the kingdom begins to grow, right? That brings more and more people in, which technically, pragmatically, what that means is more people are healed. More people are loved. More people are redeemed and renewed and restored. More people start to understand that they are adored, that they were created so God could love them. So in other words, when you and I glorify God like that in our lives, he is able then to share more of his love. It's not egotistical at all. It's for our highest good. So back to the parent analogy that we had a few minutes ago. So living a life that points to our father is kind of like understanding that we are surrounded, and we are, by abandoned, devastated people. Okay, No matter what it sometimes looks like on the outside, people are lonely, and people are lost, and people are hurting, and they're sad, and they're confused, and they're hungry for hope and meaning. And so when we start looking around, understanding we are surrounded by these abandoned people, they should know that we have this really good father who adopts without end. That there is a place for them to land. And they can be a part of this family. So, giving glory to God ultimately means more healing for this earth. We all win in that equation. So as you sort of explore your purpose here on earth, I really do believe that it boils down to this. Number one, God made you so he could love you. And you could join the family. Period. And number two, then you get to demonstrate how precious beyond everything this father is. And other people start finding out and discovering that they were created for the same family. It's a good gig, you guys. And everyone is in. Will you pray with me?